Well, thank you very much, Brother Steve, and good afternoon or good morning, brethren. Nice to be here. We drove back and forth a couple of times, just a little bit of a difficult location for us to find, but it's nice to be here. You guys seem to have your pick of churches. Uh, in Canada, we can't find anywhere to meet, uh, but you're quite, uh, quite fortunate, the other location you had and now this one. I wonder if I, I quote this uh, message that was spoken by someone in the recent past, if any of you will remember it, if it sounds familiar. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. So well, at least one person remembers. Two, okay. Maybe, maybe this will help. T minus ten, nine, eight, seven, six. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, and we have liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it is clear to the tower. Roger, roll, Challenger. Roll program confirmed. Challenger now heading downrange. Engines beginning throttling down now at 94%. We'll throttle down to 65% shortly. Engines at 65%. Three engines are running smoothly. Three good fuel cells. Velocity 2,257 feet per second. Altitude 4.3 nautical miles. Downrange distance, 3 nautical miles. Throttling up. Three engines, now at 104%. Challenger, go with throttle up. Roger, full throttle up. Velocity, 2,900 feet per second. Altitude, 9 nautical miles. Downrange, 7 nautical miles. Flight controllers are looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. My director confirms that. We are looking at recovery forces to see what can be done at this point. I am speaking of the Challenger, and uh, some of you might be too young to remember that, but for the rest of us who were there, who saw it, I think you can see the image now of that space shuttle exploding. And seven souls were lost. The commander, Francis Scobie, the pilot, Michael Smith, mission specialists, Ronald McNair, Ellison, Onizuka, Judith Resnick, and payload specialist Gregory Jarvis, and an ordinary American citizen, Krista McAuliffe. She was a high school teacher, and she competed in a contest to see which of these high school teachers could be included in this mission in order to revive this uh, space, uh, NATO's uh, space project. And unfortunately, her classroom her husband and her two children watched as she perished. What happened? The space shuttle was one of the most complex machines ever built. It had over two million separate components, and 700 of these parts were designated criticality, criticality, criticality one, which means if they failed, then the whole crew would be endangered. An engineer that worked for Morton Thiokol 
which was the subcontractor responsible for building the rocket boosters, he knew that there was a problem. Because the previous mission, Discovery, when it returned, he flagged a problem that he said we narrowly escaped disaster with Discovery. And he saw the same problem with Challenger. And that problem is something called the O-ring. It's a rubber seal that is uh, to, to prevent gas from moving through the, the rocket booster. And he noticed that it leaked in cold temperature. And on this particular date, January uh, 19th, 1989, I believe it was, the temperature in Florida was terribly, it was unprecedentedly cold. And he was terrified that there would be a disaster. He flagged his concern, raised it with management, and management told NASA that there was a problem with the O-ring. NASA basically hit the roof because there were so many delays with the launch. The public was watching. The journalists were watching. They couldn't delay again. And so they basically said to management, uh, to Morton Thiokol management, when do you expect us to launch? Which was a veiled threat. They were in the midst of negotiating another multi-million dollar contract with NASA. And when do you expect us to launch was NASA's way of saying, forget that next contract. So despite uh, Roger Beaujoli, the engineer, his concern about this O-ring not being able to operate in such cold temperatures, management pushed ahead and said, it's okay, let's proceed with the launch. It could, the, the ring could not expand in such cold temperature, and that's why it failed. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And beginning in verse 8, as Jesus Christ points us to the end time, the time just ahead of us, he says in verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Just the beginning. So, so when the world is panicking and thinking the end has come, we who are in the know realize this is just the beginning. This is not the time to panic. This is the time to keep cool and understand that there's much worse coming. So he says all of this is just the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And I think we see the world is changing and the Lord's words are beginning to come to pass. Verse 10, and then, and notice verse 10 carefully, and then only a few will be offended. Is that what your Bible says? Because it doesn't say that in mine. It actually says, at this time, Christ is telling us, many will be offended. And in such a way that, look at this, they shall betray one another. This is the future of the church that many will be offended, that these times are so horrific that a lot of brethren who said, yes, I will follow the Lord, are going to change their mind and will betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive only a few. Or is it many? Many. Many will be deceived. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. So by metaphor, just as the challenger had two million parts, and many of these parts were fine, 
but some of them could not operate in such cold temperatures. We, the church, are made up of many parts. Many parts. The body is not one part, but many. But not all the parts are able to operate in such cold temperatures. The forecast is that it shall be unprecedentedly cold. I had trouble with that earlier. I got it this time. <laughs> so the forecast is unseasonably cold temperatures. Can we launch in such conditions? And Christ is saying, I'm telling you beforehand. Th- this shouldn't catch you by surprise. It's not like NASA where all of a sudden, like, wow, the temperature's really cold. Can we launch? We didn't expect this. We expect it. So when Christ returns, can we launch? The answer should be yes. But we need to know, how do we, op- how do we love when the love of many waxes cold? How do we still love? So what I want to do for the sermon today, in this fifth Sabbath of seven, as we count towards Pentecost, is I want to encourage us, as we prepare for the Lord's return, to not only think of our preparation individually, I must be ready for Christ's return, but let us think congregationally. And I want to show you that that's how Christ thinks. When he evaluates the churches, he evaluates us congregationally. And therefore, he expects us to perform congregationally. So let's think of our launch to meet the Lord in the air, not so much individually, but congregationally. What a tragedy if, as the Lord returns, all of you launch and I'm left. I mean, it's a tragedy for me. I hope it's a tragedy for you, too. (laughs) You know, let's all launch together. We are our brother's keeper. Let us think, how, what is the health of our congregation? And what can we do to make it better? If everybody in the congregation was just like me, what kind of congregation would this congregation be? This is the question. And it's not that we're thinking congregationally to judge one another and condemn one another. It's to love one another, to help one another, to ensure one another's success. Look now at John 15. And while we're turning there, I wonder if I could get a bit of water. Thanks. John 15. And, and I think it's the sort of scripture here as we're reading about this unseasonable cold temperature coming. We don't just read over it. We don't just say, yeah, that's interesting and read on. This is the Lord speaking to us, saying the love of many will wax cold. Many will betray one another. Many will hate one another. Let's, let's take this with warning. Thanks so much. Let's, let's, let's really, like, wow. It's what the Lord is telling us, how do we ensure we don't fail? Look at John 15, beginning in verse 9. John 15 and verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so we know how much the Father loves Christ. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. So on the one hand, the love of many will wax cold. On the other, the command is, continue in my love. Don't let your love wax cold. If you keep my commandments, so if, if we keep his commandments, we shall abide in his love. So there's a command to keep in his love, to continue in his love. And then there's this insight that the only way we can abide in his love is if we keep his commandments. So those who betray, 
those who hate, those who wax cold, those who are overwhelmed by the iniquity of society are those who have chosen not to obey the Lord's commands. And by the Lord's commands, we don't just mean the Ten Commandments. We mean every command. We search the scriptures to see what does the Lord command, and then we do that. And so here he's commanding us that we love one another. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he always did those things that please the Father. We should always do those things that please Christ and the Father. These things have I spoken unto you. So I'm telling you these things. Why? Why are you telling us these things, Lord? That my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So on the one hand, he says, horrible things are going to be happening. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and just all kinds of upset all over the world. People are panicking. We're keeping our heads. End of the world, end of the world. No, 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 this is just the beginning. Buckle up. What is it? Buckle up, buttercup. Just the beginning, okay? So now, as everyone's panicking, we're keeping our heads, and he's telling us, he's telling us beforehand about this cold temperature so that there won't be a disaster, so that our joy will be full and that his joy will remain in us. This is my commandment. So you have to do what he says. This is the commandment, that you love one another the way I've loved you. So this is what we're striving for now. It's not like, I, I hope when all of this happens, I have God's love. If, if we don't have it now, we won't have it then. So we're developing it now, so it's just a part of us. It's, it's how we are. So he says here, this is my commandment, that you love one another the way that I loved you. So we have to think now, we have to study, how did he love us? What, what do the scriptures reveal about his love for us? Because that's the way we ought to love one another. It's not just, oh, I love you. It's, I have to love you the way Christ loved us. That's how we love each other. In fact, the scripture says, no man ever yet hated his own flesh. So Christ loves his wife because him and his wife are one. We love our wives. Our, our, men and women are one. Men, men and women. Husband and wife. Let's be specific here. <laughs> Husband and wife are one. And no man ever hated his own flesh. So Christ cannot hate his bride. If we hate one another, we are not in God's will. We just aren't. And so he says here, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Then he says this, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's how he loved us. He came to die for us. And now he's saying to us, love one another the way that I've loved you. So if we have this kind of love, it is impossible for us to betray one another. Rather than betray you, I'm ready to die for you. I've already made up my mind. I've set my mind that no matter what, I will not betray the body of Christ. And you've set your mind that no matter what, you will not betray the body of Christ. This is the love that's needed. And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. So greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So many are going to betray one another. Many are going to hate one another. The love of many will wax cold. But all of those many have chosen not to obey the Lord. We have to be in this category that obey the Lord. And it's not obey the Lord then when the crisis befalls us. 
it's now. We're, we, we can evaluate ourselves now. How are we doing? We must obey this commandment. You know, things are not too good in Canada. I think you know that. We have a, a leadership that's taking us down this uh, socialism path. Before it was like people wanted to leave America and go to Canada. Now folks want to leave Canada and come to America. Well, this one Canadian slipped through your border, made it to the deep south, and he was looking for work. He didn't have a visa, so he just wanted to do odd jobs. And he went door, door to door knocking. He knocked on this one lady's door, and he said, I'm looking for work. Do you have any odd jobs that I can do? And so she looked at him and said, okay, why don't you paint my porch? And she gave him a gallon of paint. She thought it would take him the better part of the day. Half an hour later, he's back. Knocks on the door, says, I'm all done. You have anything else to do? And he says to her, and by the way, lady, it's not a Porsche, it's a BMW. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, we think we've heard the instructions, but we've actually misheard. And when it comes to the Lord's instructions, we must be sure that not only that we hear them and hear them accurately, but we carry them out. Turn with me to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. And notice here in verse 9 that John introduces himself to us as, I, John, who also am your brother, so he's one of us, and companion in tribulation. So, so he knows what he's talking about. Everything he's warning us about, it's not do as I say, but not as I do. Do as I do. Do as I have done. He's been through it, just as the Lord has been through it. He says, in the patience and in the kingdom, in the tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, and then he explains that he was in the Isle of Patmos because he kept faithful to the word of God and he had the testimony of Christ, which is what we will be persecuted for. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard this behind him a great voice, like a trumpet. And this voice then introduces himself to him as Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, tells him to write what he sees in a book. In verse 12, John turns to see the voice that spoke with him. And instead of seeing who spoke, what he saw first was seven golden candlesticks. So he hears this great voice, he turns, and he sees these seven golden candlesticks. Then he sees in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, and he's our high priest. And he explains that his, his um, hairs were like white, white like wool, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and he goes on to say that he has a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth. From here, we then go into chapters 2 and 3, where we have the epistles of Jesus. So we have the epistles of Paul, we have the epistles of Peter, we have James, but Jesus himself has written to the churches. And so here we have these seven epistles of Jesus. And the instructions that we are to carry out as a church in order not to fail in the cold temperatures that are coming are in these epistles. And so I just want to spend some time with you going through some key messages that the Lord has given to us 
to carry out some key instructions, commandments that the Lord has given to us to carry out in these epistles. The problem that we have with these epistles is we don't read them carefully. In a sense, we read over them. And I think that's primarily because, I think those of us uh, who were in the Worldwide Church of God, where we saw these epistles as, uh, or these churches as eras. And so we were in the Philadelphian era, that's the letter that we needed to pay attention to. What I want to say is, we have to pay attention to all the letters. We don't pick and choose. It's like, I'm reading the Philadelphia letter because that's to me. I don't really need to worry about what's in the other six epistles. The way we need to read these letters to be successful in the cold temperature is not just to read them vertically, but what I'd say is to read them horizontally. That each letter has sections or categories. If we take that category and look what Christ says to the churches, to all seven churches in that category, we will better understand these letters. And I've actually prepared a document for you where I take each of the letters to each of the churches and the different categories and list them side by side. So we can read across, not just down. So I'll have uh, one per family just behind Pastor Watson there. Uh, and, and it's just worth taking the time. These are the words of the Lord to study these letters, not just vertically, but horizontally. Now, the clue, I'm going to give you three clues that we are to read these letters horizontally, not just vertically. Clue number one is each letter Christ introduces himself to the church with attributes from chapter one. So he takes some of the attributes from chapter one, one or two of them, and introduces himself to that church with those one or two attributes. If that church only read the letter to them, they would not really understand who's writing to them. It's by reading all the letters and looking at the attributes that Christ gives himself to all the churches and putting them together that we understand who is speaking to us. The second clue are the rewards. If we look at the rewards promised to each church, it's obvious that the reward promised is not exclusively to that church. For example, to eat from the tree of life. When the Lord returns, do we see one of the seven churches eating from the tree of life, but not the other six? To not be hurt by the second death. One of the churches is not going to be hurt by the second death, but the other six maybe. To receive a new name. One of the churches will receive a new name, but the other six won't. To have power over the nations. Only one of the seven. To not have their name blotted out of the book of life. So one of the churches gets that, but the other six don't. To be made a pillar in the temple of God. To sit with Christ on his throne. I think it becomes very clear, very obvious, even though he's speaking to one church, and he's just revealing a part of his attributes to that church, and just revealing a part of the reward to that church, it becomes clear we need to put all the letters together to see who is speaking to us and what is the reward that is promised to us. Because it's, this is the reward of the saints. We put it all together. We'll eat from the tree of life. We won't be hurt by the second death. We'll receive a new name. We'll have power over the nations. Our name will not be blotted out of the book of life. We'll be made a pillar in the temple of the Lord. 
and will sit with Christ on his throne. The third clue that we are to read these letters horizontally and read them all is in Revelation 2, 7. Revelation 2, 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his favorite church, and let him ignore what the Spirit says to the other six churches. It's just not there. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. If you have an ear, read all the letters. Verse 11. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Verse 29, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. 3.6, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. 3.13, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the, ch- unto the churches. Are we painting the porch or the Porsche? We need to hear the instructions clearly and carry them out. Now, before I get into the letter, there's one, thing, one topic I want to address, and it is this church in Philadelphia. Brethren see that this church is without condemnation, and so we gravitate to this one. We like this one, and it's promised protection from the tribulation, and so we like this church. We ignore the fact that Smyrna also has no condemnation because Smyrna is told, be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. We we don't like that. We we like, I'll protect you from the tribulation. And so just to make sure that we're not hiding behind Philadelphia, I just want to uh, disabuse us of this notion that Philadelphia is safe from harm. In Revelation 3, verse 10, he says, Because you have kept the word of my patience, so John says he's our companion, in the tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, here, Philadelphia, because you've kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There it is. Place of safety. I'm good. I don't need to worry. All of this bad stuff that's going to happen, I'm promised protection. Not so fast. Hold your place here in Revelation, but... This is rooted in Isaiah 24. Let's go to Isaiah 24. It's an allusion to Isaiah's prophecy. And in order to understand Revelation 3.10, we need to know who he's talking about. So he's going to keep us from the hour of trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Question is, who are they that dwell upon the earth? Who are they? In Isaiah 24, verse 6, their identity is disclosed. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth. So it's going to come upon all the earth. And they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. What the scripture is revealing to us is they that dwell upon the earth. 
they that are established upon the earth are the wicked. They're the ones that give themselves over to the beast. They can buy and sell, and they're just happy and fine. This is not a time of... Tri- the, the great tribulation is not their tribulation. They're having a party. You know, back in ancient Rome, uh, Nero was burning Christians at the stake just to have light for his evening parties. He wasn't suffering. The Romans weren't suffering. And the wicked don't suffer during the great tribulation. Back to Revelation. But this time let's go to verse six, or chapter 6. And verse 10, Revelation 6 and verse 10, this is the cry of the martyrs. And in verse 10, they cried with a loud voice. So they are desperate. They are clamoring and it's really a desperate plea to God. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Them that dwell on the earth are the wicked. They're established. They're immovable. They, they think everything's fine. Look at chapter 11 and verse 10. Chapter 11 and verse 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. So this is when they kill the two witnesses. Tribulation for the witnesses. Joy for them that dwell upon the earth. And they'll make merry and shall send gifts. To, it's, it's, a party, it's party time for them that dwell upon the earth. Look at... Because these prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Verse 14. And he deceives them that dwell upon the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell upon the earth, that they should make an image to the beast. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So it should be very, very clear that this hour of trial that the Philadelphia congregation is promised to be protected from. And the promise to this congregation is the promise to all. Because we put the letters together. The rewards are to all. The warnings are to all. The promises are to all. But this promise of protection is not protection from Satan's wrath. It's not protection from the Great Tribulation. It's protection from God's wrath. This is the promise of the Passover. Just as ancient Israel took the blood of the Lamb, and put it on their doorpost, and the wrath of God passed over them, and it was upon the heads of the Egyptians. In the same way, when we take the blood of the Lamb, and we're faithful to death, no matter what, we're willing to pay the ultimate price, we will not have to face the hour of God's judgment. And look at that, brethren, in chapter 14. The scripture tells us we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. chapter 14 of Revelation and verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So the wicked will hear the gospel, saying with a loud voice, Fear God 
and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. This is the hour that we should fear. This is the hour that God promises the saints will be protected from, the hour of His judgment, not Satan. We must not fear the devil. We, we have to stand firm. The worst that the devil can do is take our physical life. Who we must fear is God and His wrath. So he says here, it's the hour. This is the hour. Look at chapter 18. Chapter 18 and verse 17. For in one hour, this is the hour. For in one hour, so great riches has come to nothing. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and the sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. They can't believe it. They were having a, one, a whale of a time, buying and selling, partying. Everything was going so well. And now in this one hour, everything collapses. He says here in verse eight, 19, And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. So we have to read the letter to Philadelphia in this context. That God says here, again, we'll go back to uh, chapter 3 and verse 10, where he says, Because you have kept the word of my patience. So John says, I'm your companion in tribulation. Let's just go through this tribulation together. I'm your companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Because you've kept the word of my patience, so we understand that this is just the beginning of sorrows, we have to be patient. Because you've done that, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon all the world. This is not the hour of trial on the church. This is the hour of trial on the wicked. To try them that dwell on the earth. So I just spent some time on this, brethren, because this misunderstanding of Philadelphia is breeding cowards in the church. It's breeding an understanding that, oh, I won't have, if, if I do the right things, if I follow this man, he, he'll give me the phone call at 3 a.m. to say, get your plane ticket, we're leaving now to the place of safety. And so people are cowardly, and they won't stand up against abuse in their congregations because they're afraid they'll get kicked out. And if they get kicked out, they won't get the phone call to go to the place of safety. The people of God cannot be cowards. Cowardice and courage cannot coexist. We're either faithful or fearful, not both. And so these people who have this understanding that oh, I won't be touched, as soon as there's any kind of trouble, there's a panic that rises in front of them, inside them, instead of a resolve. Jesus Christ is Lord, King, Savior, Master. He's coming. Do your worst. It doesn't change anything. Jesus is Lord. This is the Christian way. This is what we're called to. This is the testimony of Christ. This is what we're called to. Not coward. In fact, you read Revelation 22. Who's the first category of people thrown into the lake of fire? Cowards. Cowards, then criminals. Jesus Christ does not abide cowardice. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we will not be offended. So, having said all of that, brethren, let us now talk about, look at, what does God want us to remove from our congregations as we think congregationally? 
What is the sin that concerns God that he wants out of the congregations? How do we follow his instructions? Again, when we read these letters horizontally, I think if we just read them vertically, we get lost, or we can get lost. If we read them horizontally, we can look at what does the Lord love? And we look at the letters to all the churches and we see what he loves. Then we can ask ourselves, what does he hate? And we read the letters to all the churches and we can see very clearly what he hates. And also what he hates falls into three categories. Three categories. Category number one is tolerating false doctrine. The Lord hates false doctrine. And as false doctrine creeps into the congregations, he expects us to do something about it, not to allow it to have its way, because it has devastating consequences. Look at the letter to Pergamos in Revelation 2, verse 12. Revelation 2, verse 12. He says in Revelation 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. And so it's very interesting, actually, maybe just before I get into this part. Um, John, when he hears this voice behind him, it's a great voice, sounds like a trumpet, and he turns to look at it. Who, who is speaking? And the first thing he sees are seven candlesticks. And he sees in the midst of these candlesticks the Son of Man. And he's addressing the candlesticks. He doesn't know what's going on. In verse 19, Christ says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels to the seven churches. And the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. Christ had to decode this for John because John is looking and he doesn't understand. Why is the Lord in the midst of the churches with eyes like a flame of fire? These are the eyes of wrath and a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. And the seven stars, their job is to take this sharp two-edged sword and deliver it to each of the churches. John doesn't understand this, so Christ has to decode it. It's not, oh, here I am in the midst of the seven churches. It's time to be lovey-dovey, lovey-dovey. Everything you do is just fine. Let's just love each other. That's not love. Love is, don't be the O-ring that fails in cold temperature. There's a reason why he's in the midst of the seven churches. In fact, this is rooted in Deuteronomy 23. Let's go to Deuteronomy, actually, before you go to Deuteronomy 23, Revelation 2, verse 1. Because in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16, he identifies himself, or John sees him, in the midst of the seven churches. But when Christ introduces himself to Ephesus, he adds a detail that John didn't say. And here, verse 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Unto the, angel of the, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So the, the two-edged sword is the word of God. And so the word of God must be given to the angel to give to the church. So the two-edged sword is being delivered to the church. Remember, the sword cuts both ways. So it's a warning to the church. It's the word of God. He says unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
Remember, these stars are to deliver the messages to the churches. But here's the detail. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? We didn't get that before. We just got that he was in the midst of the seven candlesticks. When he introduces himself, he says, I'm the one who walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Why is that important? Because it's an allusion to Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. And notice in verse 14. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 14, notice how the Lord identifies himself. For the Lord, your God, walks in the midst of your camp. Why does he walk in the midst of the camp? To deliver you, to give up your enemies before you, therefore shall your camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in you, and turn away from you. We don't want that. We don't want the Lord to see an unclean thing in us and turn away from us. And then when the wrath comes down upon our enemies, it comes down upon us as well. So he walks in the midst of the camp to help us be holy, to to remove the leaven from the camp, so that when he comes with judgment upon the enemies, we are joining him in that judgment. Let's go back to Revelation 2. So in Revelation now, I just want to talk about the three categories of sin that concern Christ as he evaluates the congregations, looks at us congregationally. Number one is tolerating false doctrine in Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges, cuts both ways. I know your works, and then dropping down to verse 14, but I have a few things against you. When the Lord, who has flames of fire for eyes and a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, when, when he says to you, listen, buddy, I've got a few things against you, that is terrifying. That, that's not something to just read over. And he says, if you have an ear, listen to what I say to all the churches. Because when you put it all together, you'll understand my will and my purpose. So he says here, I have a few things against you, because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Right there in your congregation, you have people who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Notice doctrine precedes behavior. First, you inject false doctrine, then you win them over to false behavior. And then he says in verse 15, so have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Nico meaning uh, victory, Nike, and laity meaning the people. Any kind of victory over the people, he hates this. So any kind of congregations, churches where it's all about domination and control over the brethren, God says he hates it. The Holy Spirit is an empowering spirit. The shepherds are just shepherds. The Lord is the shepherd. We are under shepherds to the Lord. And so we are guides. We're not to be domineering, as you'll see in some congregations. God says he hates this thing. And it's not even just the shepherds. Brethren can dominate brethren and force their will. God says he hates this thing, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He says, repent or else, 
when the Lord says, or else, and several times in these letters he says, or else. I remember when my mom used to say to me, or else. Uh, whatever it was, I just smartened up because I didn't want the or else. Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's why John was confused. The Lord is in the midst of the churches with a sword coming out of his mouth. And so Christ had to tell him the mystery. These are the churches. And these angels are going to deliver this sword to the churches and give them time to clean themselves up unless I come and fight against them. And we don't want that. We don't want to be the Lord's enemy. Look at 1 Timothy. And I want to look at 1 Timothy because it becomes very clear in this message to Timothy the connection between doctrine and behavior. Good doctrine equals good behavior. And I think, again, we can get this word doctrine, we, we take it as academic. We have good doctrine. Why do we have good doctrine? Oh, we know things. We know things. Oh, you believe God is a trinity? Ha, 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 ha. He's not a trinity. You think you're going to heaven? Ha, 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 ha. We're not going to heaven. Oh, people are burning in hell. Ha, 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 ha. I know better than that. So what? If I'm doing all of these things and behaving perversely, does this please the Lord? It's not academic doctrine. Doctrine is behavioral. We know the Lord is one. And that changes how we behave. We know the Lord will marry the church. That changes how we behave. We know the Lord will burn the wicked. That changes how we behave. We know things from the word so that we behave differently. So that we clean ourselves up. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, the Spirit ex- there's no way around this. Now the Spirit speaks expressly. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, our time, some shall depart from the faith. We saw that. This is the prophecy. There will be apostasy. As much as we don't want to face this, the temperature is dropping and many will betray one another. I I wish I had better news, but this this is the word of the Lord. This is the unfortunate part of the path that we're on. The Spirit says expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So seducing spirits, it's about behavior. They're going to seduce us into behavior. Verse 6, If you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, these things are behavioral, you shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourish up in the words of faith, and of good doctrine, whereunto you have attained. And look at this in verse 7. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself rather unto godliness. Verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 15. Meditate upon these things. Give yourself wholly to them, that your profiting may appear to all. Take heed to yourself, and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. So we could go on and on. There's so many scriptures that relate doctrine to behavior. We have to behave differently because of what the Lord has revealed to us. It's not just having this kind of head knowledge and we know things others don't know. 
but our behavior is no better. We're, we're, at, we're at each other's throats. We're at odds with each other. We're involved in the perversion of the world. And yet we, we know things. Which leads to the second category of sin that the Lord is concerned about. First, it's false doctrine, tolerating false doctrine. So it's not, false doctrine is everywhere. It's the tolerance. The Lord is intolerant. It's sophisticated now to be tolerant. In fact, if you're not tolerant, you're closed-minded. The Lord is not tolerant. And he condemns the churches that tolerate false doctrine. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to condemn the tolerance of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Look at verse 18 to Thyatira. And and there's a connection. False doctrine leads to false ideas, which lead to false behavior. So first we tolerate false doctrine, then we tolerate sexual immorality. Verse 18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Look at verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. The Lord is against his church. Because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and not her alone, them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. This is speaking of the church. There are brethren who are committing sexual immorality with this woman, and there are only two women in the book of Revelation. There's the holy bride, and there's the whore of Babylon. And all mankind is either fitting into one of these two categories. So the church, or brethren, are participating with the whore of Babylon. And she's everywhere. She's everywhere. She's in the music, she's in the clothing, she's in the television, everything. That's, that's who the devil wants us to participate with. But he says he will commit, he will uh, cast her into a bed and them that commit sexual immorality with her into great tribulation unless we repent of our deeds. This uh, website, questions.org, it's a website for uh, the Christian world, has this article, Why is Pornography Addiction a Serious Problem? He says, Today, pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry that is spreading a wide net by providing sexual arousal on demand. Multi-billion. They are destroying lives, but they're, they're enriching themselves. They're destroying lives. He says, Modern culture is drenched with sexual images. images. It is so obsessed with short-term sensual pleasure that sexual self-control and chastity tend to be popular, popularly viewed as manifestations of mental or emotional disorder. So if you're chaste, you're seen as being mentally unstable. That is just normal to be involved in sexual immorality. He says, if large numbers of evangelical Christians began using cocaine on a regular basis, We wouldn't be surprised when many of them develop serious problems relating to addiction. Yet, pornography is far more addictive. He says, 
We are so awash in pornography these days that most of us don't recognize it anymore. Of internet users in the United States, 40% visit porn sites at least once a month. And evangelical Christians have problems with porn addiction. Are we completely immune in the church of God? This is, this is dangerous, dangerous, and the devil knows how addictive it is. And God says he's going to cast those who commit sexual immorality with Jezebel into the great tribulation with her. The third category of sin that Christ highlights is becoming indifferent, losing our passion. So first we start with tolerating false doctrine, then we tolerate sexual immorality, and then we become so discouraged we become indifferent to this holy calling. Look at Hebrews Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? This is a great salvation. This is not the time to become indifferent. This is the time to move with a sense of urgency. The Lord is near. His appearing is near, and His reward is with Him. We should be full steam ahead, not discouraged. The way to get us discouraged is to get us to commit sexual immorality. And the way to get us to commit sexual immorality in all its various forms is to get us to tolerate false doctrine. So these categories of sin, false doctrine, sexual immorality, and indifference, we must remove from our congregations. And we have to work together to do this. These seven astronauts perished in a consuming fire. The Lord does not want his seven churches to perish. An ordinary citizen was called to the heavens. God is calling ordinary citizens to join him. Let us live in such a way that the people we meet in this world will never forget us, nor the last time they saw us as we prepared for our journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to reach the face of God. Let's conclude in Revelation 22. Revelation 22 and verse 6. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And this is reality. These are faithful and true. A lot of fake news. This is true news. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So we must make sure that all the parts of the body are working properly. Not only that they're working properly, but that they can perform in cold temperature. In record-breaking cold temperature, we still need to love one another. Whatever part of the body we play, and we're all different, but we're all knit together. He comes quickly. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, Revelation 22, verse 10. And he says unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, 
let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Four, three, two, one. We have liftoff, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. And we have liftoff, liftoff of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and it is clear at the tower. Roger, roll churches. Roll program confirmed. Churches now heading downrange. Engines beginning throttling down at 94%. We'll throttle down to 65% shortly. Engines at 65%. Three engines are running smoothly. Three good fuel cells. Velocity 2,200 feet per second. Altitude 4.3 nautical miles. Downrange distance 3 nautical miles. Throttling up. Three engines now at 104%. Churches go with throttle up. Roger, full throttle up.